Good evening and welcome to tonight's Bible study. Tonight's Bible study will be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Uh, but before we start, let's just uh, bow our heads and uh, with a quick word of prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be your And Father, I ask that you will open the hearts and minds of everyone listening to this message, that you will work in their hearts and, and minds, and that they will be able to process this, this knowledge and wisdom that is shared from your word, and that it will give them a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of, of who you are and what you came to do on earth, what your mission was for us. So, Father, we praise you for everything, and we ask you to, to help me to deliver this message. Ask us in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so let's get into it. Tonight's Bible study deals with an extremely important part of Scripture. I mean, all Scripture is important, but this portion, I believe, is key to understanding Jesus Christ in the correct context. Therefore, I have to add a disclaimer up front. I will really only skim the surface of this topic tonight. And, but however, my intention is not to do an exhaustive study on this passage, but to rather provide you with the basics and introduce you to the topic if you have not yet been introduced to it. Um, so the theological topics that I will deal with tonight will shape your, your biblical worldview. And as I've said before, my intention with these Bible studies is to challenge our worldviews, mine included, and our worldviews in relation to the Word of God. We are bombarded with ideas and concepts from the world um, through media, through news, through marketing. But I challenge everyone to make the Bible the ultimate authority in your lives, since it is God's divine revelation to us. The Bible should be the filter through which we view the world. The world, as chaotic as it may seem at the moment, makes sense when you view it through the lenses of Scripture. So let's start tonight's study. Philippians chapter 2, and I will start with verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, of, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we'll take a break here at verse 4. So what we will do is we'll start with the word therefore, which is the first word in the passage. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you need to ask what it is there for. That makes sense, right? So once again, this is why it is vitally important to read and study to study any portion of scripture within its proper in, intended context. The term therefore connects whatever was said in Philippians chapter 1 to whatever Paul is about to tell them. Remember, chapters were added as a means to assist us in a quick reference of verses and portions of scripture. But when this letter was written, it was really just one letter, and the intention was that the letter would have been publicly read by the Philippian churches. Remember that in chapter 1, Paul wrote these profound words, which should really be the heart of all believers. In chapter, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, he wrote, 
for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what did the last couple of verses in chapter 1 deal with? Verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 dealt with Paul urging the Philippian church to be united by standing firm in the faith and not being frightened by what was happening to the church. The Philippian church was being persecuted in, in this time. Therefore, the emphasis in this portion of scripture is unity in the face of persecution from without. And he went himself has been tasked with serving Christ and to suffer for his sake. So too are they, the Philippian church. And this is also something that we as born again believers should be ready and willing to endure. All of us should be serving in the kingdom of God. But some of us may at a time be called to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's better to be ready and willing and it does not happen than to not be ready and not be willing. And then you deny Christ or your faith in that moment because you do not understand why you're going through through something. That's why I'm, a, why I'm big on having an accurate worldview. If you, for instance, hold to the prosperity gospel or the word of faith, faith movement, then when you suffer persecutions, trials, and tribulations, you will be knocked down. And the worst is the theology of those gospels will tell you that you didn't have enough faith or you didn't, or you did something wrong. And that's why those things happen to you, which we will see in tonight's study is actually contrary to scripture. And we've seen it last week as well, where Paul teaches that believers do go through persecution and trials and suffering. And now the text we're dealing with today in Philippians 2 verse 1 to 4, Paul continues to urge the church to maintain unity. But the emphasis here, as we will see, is not from problems from without, the persecution from without, but it's problems from within the church. So Paul rightfully connects the two thoughts of unity against opposition on the one hand and unity from within the church on the other hand. Because it will be of little to no value if the church was united against the opposition, but there was division within the body of Christ. This kind of imbalance would damage their witness to others, but would also hamper the effectiveness in focusing on their common goal, which was, and it still is today, the Great Commission. Now, if we look at verses 1 to 4, we will notice there's a certain structure to Paul's argument for unity within the church. You will notice that there are four if statements contained in verse 1. Then there is the central command or the request from Paul that is, fulfill my joy. And that's in the opening of verse 2. And then he mentions four things by which they could do that. Then in verses 3 and 4, he provides some additional practical advice on how to do this and achieve this unity within the church. And this list is, is not exhaustive in itself. But it's some of the issues that may have caused division within the Philippian church at that time. Now, let's look at verse one and follow this logical structure. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy. So here are the four if statements I mentioned. These are the grounds for this for his exhortation to unity. Or in other words, this is the basis for Christian unity. So it's important to notice that the world's idea of unity is far different from God's idea of unity. We need to realize that unity for the sake of unity is not God's will. Unity in Christ is God's will. Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 34 to 36, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. 
I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, this seems strange, but let's consider what Jesus is saying. He came to earth to die as a sacrifice for our sin in order for us to be able to attain salvation. That was his ultimate mission on earth. In John 3, verse 16 to 21, it explains that, um, and I'm going to read it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then he goes on in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. In other words, there's a division between this darkness and the light. We are not called to be united with everyone, including those in darkness, um, but to rather make disciples of all nations. It's our job as disciples of Christ to co-labor, be used by God to bring as many out of this darkness and into the light as possible. The Lord's heart is as Peter describes in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this verse is speaking of Jesus' second coming. But notice, it says he does not want, every, want anyone to perish. Therefore, we are not called to be united with unbelievers and love them while they are on their way to eternal damnation. That's not love. We are called to love them as Christ loves them and to see them come to salvation and get to know Jesus. But back to the if statements. These if statements are rhetorical in nature. These statements are absolutely true as well. But he still, but Paul still phrases it in a way that the Philippian church can do some interest. They can consider whether they are truly enjoying these blessings that characterize the Christian walk. By using if, Paul is not doubting that the Philippian church are experiencing these characteristics of a walk with Christ. Remember in Philippians 1 verse 6, he said he is confident of this very thing, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You could therefore almost regard these if statements as sin statements. So there are two ways Paul could have intended these statements, uh, both which are equally true. And there are some difficulty in understanding these, um, these verses because of the structure and the way it was written in the ancient Greek. But the first way to understand it is this. You will notice that the words consolation and comfort seem to be synonyms. And in the sense, they are synonyms. However, consolation is which is a general term for comfort. Therefore, this term, the first if statement, may serve as an overview for the rest of the ideas that follow. So the ideas of love, fellowship, affection, and mercy. All of these could work together 
towards the encouragement and comfort of the suffering believer, which was happening. And all of these are most definitely found in Jesus Christ as well. So when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you experience comfort and you experience all our truth. And we all should experience that. Then the second way in which I understand these statements, um, and to understand it better, I'm going to read from the ESV translation, which renders this translation of this verse slightly different. In Philippians 2 verse 1 to 2, the ESV says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So some believe that Paul is following his usual way of incorporating the Trinity into his writings. So in this view, if we look at it in this way, there's encouragement in Christ, there's comfort from love by God the Father, and participation in the Holy Spirit. And before I continue, just an interesting note on the the, the word as translated in, in, into English, fellowship or participation uh, with a, in relation to the Spirit. You may have heard of the word koinonia, and this is actually the Greek word which is used in this phrase. So the word koinonia, koinonia specifically refers to Christian fellowship with God or with other believers. So that's why they also believe that because the word koinonia is, is, is used, that it refers to fellowship of the, of the Holy Spirit. Then the last two, which is named together, any affection and mercy. These two terms are not referred in relation to God. So it seems that these terms are directed at the strained relationships within the Philippian church. In other words, for a normal, healthy Christian fellowship, when we live Holy Spirit-filled lives, Christians should, should live lives full of affection and mercy towards others, just as the triune God has bestowed upon us. He's bestowed a lot of affection and a lot of unlimited mercy upon us. So now we get to verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Paul is exhorting them to fulfill his joy, which is a joy in the Christ that he has for them. So his spiritual children, so to speak. So if the rhetorical statement is true about them, which Paul does believe so, then he, as their spiritual father, is asking them to fulfill his joy by doing four things, which all speak to the internal unity within the church. He asks him to be like-minded. In Corinthians 2 verse 16, Paul writes that we have the mind of Christ. In John 16 verse 13 to 16, Jesus said, When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. You will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare to you. Believers having a new spirit and a new mind, we are like-minded or should be like-minded. And be united in the fact that we have the mind of Christ. Then he goes on to say having the same love. Matthew 22, verse 37 to verse 40, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
This is what Jesus told the scribes when they asked him what the greatest law was, if you remember that account. And this is how Christians should, should love. We should love God with everything we have, with our heart, mind, and soul. Then we should love our neighbors as ourselves. If we have this type of love and we have our in this order, then we will experience a deep unity within the church. And so on this, I'm not someone that, that remembers things by acronyms or even teaches in that way. But there's one acronym in English um, relating to, to scripture that does make sense. And it's something that is worth reminding yourself of regularly. It's the acronym JOY. It's J-O-Y. It says we should always put Jesus first, others second, and yourself third, or yourself last. That's the Christian way. It's very different from the way or the or whatever the world teaches us, right? The world teaches the opposite. It teaches that we should have more self-confidence, more pride, and it teaches that teaches us that we should love ourselves more. I mean, I, I'm sure we don't need more of, more of that. We love ourselves um, enough. <laughs> but um, being of one accord, this means being of one soul. If and when we all allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit, then we will be united in our thoughts and the decisions we make. So there's an illustration I can use about being led by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to use this illustration of us driving a car, uh, which is something I love, by the way. So imagine the car being your the car is being your life. Now you drive this car alone until you are born again. Then the Holy Spirit is with you in this car. At the at the point when you are, when we are born again, we receive the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, and we can have all the access to the gifts and the power of the Spirit. But if we decide to put the Holy Spirit in the passenger seat, then you are not really being led by the Holy Spirit. If you are ever put the Holy Spirit behind the wheel of this car and you get into the passenger seat and you let the Holy Spirit lead you completely, then you are led by the Holy Spirit. And when you, when you have a church whose individual members are led by the Holy Spirit in this way, a united church. However, if we all want to go in our own directions because of our own desires, then the church will be divided. And then the last one is of one mind. You can see Paul is using a couple of terms that basically mean the same thing, and it relates to the same idea. If we are all filled by the same Holy Spirit, we should be all, all we should all be of one mind. Sorry. <laughs> Verse three: Let nothing be done, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, here we have the first of the practical advice on how to practically achieve this unity within the church. As Christians, we should be very humble. We should be the first to recognize that nothing we have or nothing we have become is of our own power. It's all because God has placed us in a specific context and has blessed us with gifts and talents. Now, this does not mean that we should as, as if we are insignificant or unimportant. No. We are fearfully made in the image of God, and we have been made righteous by the grace by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But it does mean that we accept and recognize that we cannot do or achieve anything without God. We should do nothing out of selfish ambition. We, we can be ambitious, of course, 
but it should be an ambition rooted in Christ. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. He was very ambitious. So we should also do nothing out of conceit. And this is speaking of an excessive pride in oneself. We should esteem others better than ourselves. As I explained with, with the acronym JOY, uh, put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last, and you won't have a problem with this. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This brings Paul's thought to a conclusion. If we put away selfish ambition and conceit, but we humble ourselves and always place others ahead of ourselves, then we will naturally look out and be concerned for others' interests. Now the next portion, we get to the next portion and the final portion of the night study. And this is the portion with the heavier theological doctrine in it, which uh, we will barely scratch. So let's read verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's break this down. Verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, we have considered the fact that we should have the same mind as Christ, um, as we saw in the study. But Paul is now going to explain this mind of Christ. He's going to explain this, this concept to us. And in doing so, we will touch on an important theological doctrine, as I said. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, in the form of God, Let's look at that. If we only look at the English translation of the word form and do not consider the ancient Greek word Paul used, we could come up with a skewed of, of who Jesus is or what his characteristic or what characteristics he has. In English, if something is in the form of something else, then it only imitates the other object. It doesn't it doesn't really become that other that other object. It doesn't it doesn't mean it is the other thing. For instance, we can build a robot that re resembles a human being, but in the it, it can be in the form of a human being, but it does not mean that the robot is a human being and it cannot become a human being. It's merely in the human form. Now, the ancient Greek word is more encompassing and more complex than simply meaning form. The ancient Greek word is which is used is the word morphe. The Greek word carries the idea of something that is exactly corresponding to its inward reality. So this word is only used in two other places in the Bible. And in support of the fact that this word is used in relation to God, and it does not merely refer to Jesus taking on some form of God or having some of the characteristics or likeness of God. Let's look at how this word morphe is used by Paul in the next sentence. But before we get to that uh, next, before we get to that is, is in the next verse, let's look at the last portion of verse six, just to conclude this verse. Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. A commentator by the name of Wust defines the ancient Greek word 
um, translated robbery as a treasure to be clutched and retained at all hazards. So the idea Paul is trying to bring across is that Jesus did not have to try and achieve equality with God the Father. He was already equal. Jesus already had his divine nature and he did not have to try and attain it. And he did not have to hold on to it because he already possessed this nature. And a commentator by the name of Lightfoot wrote that it was not a prize which must, which must not slip from his grasp, a treasure to be clutched and retained at all hazards. Jesus was willing to let go of prerogatives of deity to become a man. So now let's look at, at verse 7. We'll build on this idea. In Philippians 2 verse 7, Paul says of Jesus that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Here the same word morphe is used. And you can clearly see that Paul is talking about something more than merely the form Jesus took on. Because Jesus did not merely take on the form of a bondservant, but he became a bondservant. We know this. We see the account, the gospel accounts. Jesus humbled himself to the point where he became a servant. And that's what he was during his earthly ministry. He was a servant. So it just supports the idea that we see in, verse, uh, uh, in Philippians 2 verse, 7, uh, 2 verse 6, where he says in the form of God. He was God. And coming in the like, he was and he is God. And coming in the likeness of men. This is the idea of how Jesus humbled himself. He could have taken on the likeness of angels who are also servants, but they are not in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2 verse 7 speaks about how Christ was made lower than the angels. So first, the angels cannot even be compared to God since God created the angels. And this is where some people have it wrong or completely wrong, actually. They see Satan as God's equal or as his direct opposition, which is not a more accurate comparison would be Satan versus Michael the Archangel. So that's how incomparable they are. So if Jesus were to humble himself to the point of an angel, it would have been a massive step down. But he went even further and humbled himself to the point of becoming a man by adding a human nature to his deity. Now in this verse lies one of the most significant theological doctrines. Because if you understand it incorrectly, you will have a skewed idea of who and what Jesus was. And we'll consider the phrase, he made himself of no reputation. That is the translation in the New King James Version. The New King James Version, sorry. <laughs> and in the ESV, it is translated as he emptied himself. Now, both these translations are correct. But it can cause confusion and a warped theology if we take the idea of him emptying himself too far. I therefore think it is of utmost importance that we touch on this, this issue. And, uh, and uh, the topic we're going to touch on is called the kenosis. Now, the word kenosis comes from the Greek word kino, which literally means to make empty. And this is the ancient Greek word that was used in this verse. In the figurative use of this language, it can mean to abase, to neutralize, of no effect, or of no reputation, which is how the New King James Version translated it. Where kino is the verb in this sentence, kenosis is the noun. So that's where they come up with the term kenosis. So the doctrine of kenosis refers to Jesus' self-emptying in his corner. In other words, when he came to earth. So notice that this verse does not say of what Jesus emptied himself. And we have to be very careful not to infer meaning onto scripture 
to, to suit a specific view or belief. The best thing to do is to let scripture interpret scripture. So let's start with what this is not saying. It is not saying that Jesus gave up some or all of his divine attributes when he came to earth. It is definitely not mentioned in this verse. And there are some that misunderstand this or that falsely teach that Jesus gave up some or all of his divine nature when he, when he came to earth. One of these that knowingly take it too far is what is known as the kenotic theory, but it is also referred to as kenoticism or the kenotic theology. The divinity of Jesus, which was the son of God, was somehow lost or lessened when he came to earth. Actually, we, we see some clear evidence in the Gospels that Jesus did possess the power and wisdom of God. I'm going to give you some examples. And like I said, this is not exhaustive, and we're only really skimming the surface. But Jesus healed the demon possessed in Matthew 8, verse 28 to 34. There's an example of that. He healed lepers. There's an example in Matthew 8, verse 3. He healed the sick in Matthew 4, verse 23 to 24. And he healed paralytics in Mark 2, verse 1 uh, to, to verse 12. Uh, and amongst others, uh, Jesus raised the dead. He raised the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, verse 11 to 15. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead in Luke 8, verse 41 to 55. And he raised Lazarus. We know, this is a, a famous one from the dead in John 11, verse 1 to 44. And then Jesus displayed his divine power over nature when he calmed the storm in Mark 4, verse 39. And Jesus at times displayed his omniscience. Omniscience meaning, meaning that he knows everything and every thought and so on. We see examples of this in Luke 6, verse 8, in John 13, verse 11, and in John 18, verse 4. So Jesus still had access to the full spectrum of his divine nature and power. So we need to understand that whatever the emptying of in this term, kino, and in this in, in context of this verse, whatever this entails, that Jesus was and he was and he still is fully God. In Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul said, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in John 1 verse 14, it says, And the word became among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the question is, how then should we interpret this emptying of Jesus? It's better to think of it as him voluntarily laying aside his divine privileges when he came to earth. So the kenosis was therefore a self-renunciation rather than an emptying of his deity. It was also not an exchange of his deity for humanity. He never ceased to be God during his earthly ministry. During the entire time, he was fully man and fully God. And guess what? <laughs> he still is today and will be forevermore. Many people forget or don't realize Jesus is still fully man. And will be forevermore. We see that he refrained from using his divinity in order to make his life on earth any easier. Instead, he completely and fully submitted himself to God the Father. John 5 verse 19 says, as this is Jesus speaking, and he answered, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for what he ever Sorry, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So to understand the kenosis, rather than focusing on what Jesus gave up, we should focus on what Jesus took on. 
Why did Jesus take on? Jesus humbled himself by adding a human nature to his origin. Jesus did not merely humble himself by taking on a human nature. I mean, he came to earth and was born in a manger. He did not come to, to earth as a fully grown man in full splendor and glory and might. But he had to go through the humility of being a baby, of being a toddler, of being a teenager. And then he had to physically work in the trade. And a super hard one at that. He, he was a carpenter. And I'm saying super hard because um, when we tiled our or retiled our house during last year, and I didn't, well, someone else retiled the, the, the house and I wasn't aware or I, for, I, I, I didn't even think about it that now when you tile on top of an existing surface, then the floor is obviously <laughs> going to lift a little bit. It's going to be a little bit higher than you in the doors or cut a little bit of the door away at the bottom. So we did that, but then ne neglected to do one door. So that evening, I thought my wife and my daughter and <laughs> were sleeping at the mother-in-law's place. I thought that night I will do it alone with I don't have uh, any power tools, so I will do it by, by a manual saw. And let me tell you, that is a solid piece of wood, and I'm thankful that I'm not a carpenter. But Jesus was a carpenter. It was a super hard, it was a super hard job. So, And uh, being a carpenter, don't think of Jesus as being a wimp. I mean, he had to be in a physically good condition. But in any case, I'm digressing. And then what else did Jesus take on? He ultimately, as we read in verse 8, he humbled himself to the point where he, where he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We should therefore understand the emptying or becoming of no reputation as the spirit in which Jesus humbled himself. By humbling himself, he actually had to veil his divinity. And we see this during the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where it says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. It's as if Jesus removed his veil or moved it aside for just a moment to reveal some of his majesty and glory. And to wrap this idea up, I will, I will quote a biblical scholar named J.J. Mueller. He says, at his incarnation, he remained in the form of God and as such, he is Lord and ruler over all. But he also accepted the nature of a servant as part of his humanity. So therefore, we should not think of the kenosis as Jesus removing or putting off or setting aside a part of a part or all of his deity. That's impossible. There is no way he could be veiling. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. There's no way he could be any less the creator God. We should rather see the kenosis as Jesus voluntarily veiling his deity and only using it when necessary for a specific purpose. And when was this these specific purposes? It's when it was in line with the Father's will. In other words, Jesus could have displayed his full glory and demanded respect from everyone. I mean, he is God, but he chose to. That's what we look at in, in verse 8. But a significant, significant example to us, being obedient to, to God the Father, even though he was even though he was equal to God the Father. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Jesus being fully God took on a human nature and became fully man as well. That's what we just discussed. He humbled himself by veiling his glory, as we talked about in verse 6, by being incarnate, in other words, adding humanity to his nature, becoming a servant. He was, and he wasn't not merely, merely a human, but he was a servant at that, and by dying for our sins. And by the way, dying was not nature. He was without a sin nature. That's why the virgin birth was so important. The Bible teaches that the sin nature is passed along through the seed of man. Mary did not conceive Jesus through man, but through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he did not have that sin nature. And if you think about it, I don't think, and this is my view, but I don't think Jesus, having been without the sin nature, I think he ever had to die. Because we, we learn in, in Genesis 1, or in, in in Genesis, not Genesis 1, but in the first couple of chapters in Genesis, through sin, death entered into the world. He did it voluntarily because he loved us so much. We need to understand that. Then he humbled himself by not merely dying for our sins, but allowing it to happen in the most humiliating and degrading way possible. The Roman crucifixion was super humiliating. The movies that we see, some of them are gruesome. Some of them try to make it as accurate as possible. But I don't think they can make it 100% accurate. It's impossible because otherwise viewers can't, can't watch it. And then secondly, it was really humiliating. The Romans did not, in the movies, we see that Jesus had some, under, some undergarments on or whatever, the Romans left no place for dignity. They took everything off. He was naked on the cross. Verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so for the most part, I don't have to explain anything about this verse. It is pretty self-explanatory. But for the sake of completeness and for the sake of those who have never encountered this verse before, I will comment on it as I read through it again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God also has highly exalted him. In the Greek, the phrase highly exalted means super eminently exalted. That's according to uh, Jamison Fawcett uh, Brown the Bible commentary by them. And Matthew Poole comments in the following way. He says the Greek elegancy imports super exalted or exalted with an exaltation, answering to his gradual humiliation above the grave in his resurrection, the earth in his above the heavens at his father's right hand, upon the throne of his glory to judge the world. And he references Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 22 and Ephesians 4 verse 10. In other words, because Jesus humbled himself to the point we, we discussed a moment ago in the way he humbled himself, Jesus is also exalted above anything else. The Father just exalted him above anything else. And given him the name which is above every name. So some scholars think that the name referred to here refers to Jesus, which it, it, it could be. However, I personally do not think so. I think that it the reason I think it is plainly because Jesus in itself is a common name. 
in the Old Testament, others who have, or others have the same name as Jesus. In the people, in, including uh, uh, Joshua, there's a reference in Haggai uh, one verse one, and Joshua in Ezra two verse two. These are the Hebrew equivalents. And in the New Testament, we have references to others with the same name, Jesus, exactly the same. In Acts seven verse forty-five, and in Colossians four verse eleven, and in Hebrews four verse eight. So there were others with the same name. But on the other hand, there is a group of scholars that believe this is referring to the name Yahweh. And I also believe this. And the reason I hold this view is because of the next verse, verse 10. Let's read it. Verse 10 says that at the time, sorry, that Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul is doing something significant. And this is, this is quite interesting. He is using an Old Testament prophecy and has made Jesus the subject of it. Now, what's the significance of it? Let's read Isaiah 45, verse 23. It says, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth into righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So he's referencing this in Isaiah. So Paul ascribes these words in Isaiah to Jesus Christ. So what, you might ask? Well, a couple of verses earlier in the same chapter, we see who is saying these words. In Isaiah 45, verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord, Lord in all capitals, that small Lord in all capitals. That word, yeah, that, that word Lord in all capitals refers to the tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh. Also, or it is also referred to as Jehovah in some translations. Therefore, Paul is saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus is equal to Yahweh. So notice that at some stage, every knee shall bow, tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it says in heaven, and that will be their pleasure, of course, since they have already made a decision to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. We have already confessed and bowed down to Jesus. On earth, so it doesn't matter whether you are an atheist or whether you are willing to, or whether you willingly choose not to bow, bow to Jesus today. At some stage, you will bow down to Jesus. Therefore, my best advice is if you have not yet come to accept Jesus as Lord and your personal Savior, rather figure out your own hang-ups while you still have a chance. Otherwise, you will bow down to Jesus and you will confess that he is Lord, but your confession won't be made unto salvation. It will be too late. And he goes on to say, and of those under the earth. So it's referring to those in Hades. Remember, the only ones currently in Hades are those in the place of torment, the temporary hell where unbelievers go when, when they die. They will bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord. But once again, when they do it, it will merely be because they cannot stand in his presence and majesty. And they cannot help but fall down and confess that he is Lord. But it has, doesn't have to be that way for any one of us listening here to this message. If you have not yet made a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't wait any longer. Consider this message and accept the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Romans 10 verse 9 to 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. It's a promise. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I mean, if you, if you still don't know how to do this, personally reach out to me. Personally reach out to me. Don't, don't be embarrassed. Don't be afraid. If you don't want to come to me, go to someone else. But I won't, I will just be too happy if you come and to explain in more words or in, in other terms. But it's an essential decision you have to make. So as we once again saw tonight, Jesus humbled himself to the point where he suffered probably the greatest humiliation a human being could suffer, a death on the cross, in order that he might pay the price for our sins. And he did this because he wants all to come to salvation and not any to go to hell. However, when or, or we as believers have been given a free will and God will not force anyone to believe, we have to make that decision ourselves. We need to decide where we place our allegiance. There's a lot of different religions or non-religions, such as atheism, um, but also <laughs> I, I believe atheism has also become religion on its own. If we look at the kind of zeal that some of some of the atheists cling to, but the, the Bible, there's one true creator God who made us all one human race. We fell into sin through Adam, and as a response to this, God sent his only beloved son to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, all other religions are either man-made sinful rebellions against God or it's Satan's attempt to deceive people in order to, to, for them not to accept the free gift of salvation. And just a final comment to highlight that Jesus is equal to God. See how Paul ends the statement. He says, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, I said this is full of theological implications, and just see how it ends this. Paul uses a Greek word, kurios, where we have the word translated as Lord. And we know that Lord is his title, Jesus is his name, and Christ is his mission. That's how we know, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his de designation, in other words. Uh, Christ meaning his designation, is the Messiah. That's what it means. But in the time of Jesus, they used the Septuagint as their Bible, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And that was in existence for over 300 years before, before Jesus came and dwelled on earth and he became human. It's basically our Old Testament in Greek. The word kurios was commonly used for the tet uh, tetragrammaton. Or in other words, as I explained earlier, Yahweh. So you see how this idea comes full circle. Therefore, once again, and I cannot emphasize this enough, Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh. And this, by the way, is an excellent verse. <laughs> if you're going to go back, I think this is one of those verses that even the Jehovah's Witnesses will have a trouble or a difficulty explaining. Because if you bring it back, it equals Jesus to Yahweh. Powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. And that ends our study for tonight. So like I said, I can never do this justice. This not, not tonight's Bible study. Um, it's, it's just rich in theology. But thank you for joining. And 
hopefully you gain something and perhaps gained a better understanding or just again an appreciation for for who Jesus is, for what he is, and what he's come to earth to do for us. Um, I think this is actually the true Christmas story. This should be the true Christmas story of Jesus' incarnation. So let me just bow bow my head and say prayer. I'm full of your wisdom. It's full of knowledge and it's it's just so difficult to exhaust. It's it's inexhaustible, Father. Um, we come to you humbly and we ask you that you will, you will open our hearts and minds to understand it more deeply, to gain a better understanding of your word and to to have an accurate biblical worldview and that you will lead us into that path, Lord, of just refining it. That, that lenses we, we use to, to view the world will be through your eyes, Father God, and not through these eyes of our sinful human nature, which we've uh, built up through media, through marketing messages that's being bombarded to us, not through through anything, Father God, but through your word and through your Holy Spirit. So, Father God, we thank you for it, and we ask you, Lord, that you will be with us in this coming week. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. And for those who is going to join afterwards on Zoom, I will log in uh, soon. Okay. Keep up.